Shalom, I'm Yael Ziegler, and today we will be learning our fifth and final parak of Megillat Echa. Um, at the end of this shiur, we will also spend a little bit of time discussing the structure, the overall structure of Megillat Echa. Um, in, the first thing that I think that we have to note about the fifth parak is that it is strikingly different from all of the previous chapters. Um, right away you notice that there is no alphabetic structure, there are no acrostics in this fifth chapter. We noted that there are 22 verses, so it corresponds to the earlier chapters, but there there is no acrostic structure which suggests that this is deliberate, especially because there is the um, the the infrastructure for the acrostics. Because there are 22 verses, we could easily have turned this into an acrostic structure, and yet it is deliberately missing from this chapter. Um, the chapter also does not begin with the word echa. It, it doesn't feel exactly like a lament. It is a much shorter chapter than previous chapters. Each verse has one binary sentence, that is, one sentence that is divided into two parts, instead of two sentences as we had in the fourth chapter, or three sentences to each verse as we had in the first and second chapters. So if the first three chapters are of equal length in the book of Echa, the fourth chapter is one-third shorter, and the fifth chapter is is one-third of the first three chapters, is one-third shorter than the fourth chapter. There's one sentence in each verse. Um... This chapter doesn't really feel like a lament. The ideas aren't drawn out as they were in previous chapters. We don't have the same sense of anguish. Um, it is, in that sense, an improvement over previous chapters. Previous chapters were filled with anguished, heartfelt cries. There was an attempt to describe all of the terrible troubles. And here, everything seems much more matter-of-fact, much more abrupt. There's just almost a list of all the things that we have lost. And that is really, I think, the, um, the, the subject matter of this chapter is a, a catalog of the different things that we have lost as a result of the destruction, as a result of the Khorban. Um, even the meter seems to have shifted in this chapter. While some of the um, sentences do have kina meter, the lamentation meter that we identified in our second uh, lesson, in our lesson on biblical poetry, we had what we talked about was the lamentation meter, which is unequal meter as opposed to the meter of most biblical poetry, which is balanced meter, where the stressed syllables on one side of the sentence are equal and balanced to the number of stressed syllables on the second side of the sentence. Well, here, the kina meter, while it does appear in some of the sentences and some of the verses in chapter Chapter 5, it's basically been replaced by regular biblical meter. I'll read for you, for example, verse 4, Memenu bechesef shatinu, etzenu bemechir yavo. Right? So even without understanding the meaning of the words, you already have a sense of the rhythm. The rhythm has been restored. There's a sense of balance, which is restored alongside the, uh, the, the balanced meter. And we noted that the kina meter, the lamentation meter, which is imbalanced, which is uneven, it gives you a sense of the imbalance in the person's life. The person who is speaking, who is reading Megillat Echa, more importantly, 
Ultimately, the person who is listening to Megillat Echa is hearing that that we can't even finish our sentences. They're waiting for that last word. And here we, we seem to have um, been given back to some extent our balance. Um, this alongside with the fact that there are no acrostics, which means that this chapter is not attempting to convey the totality of destruction. It's not exactly saying that everything is included here in our sense of great grief, in our sense of suffering, alongside the fact that um, the chapter does not begin with the word echa, that it is not exactly a lament, the strong question echa, how, with an almost elongated how, echa, how with a, with a sigh. Um, alongside this, it's also important to note the speaker of chapter 5. Chapter 5 is no longer using the most common speakers for Megillat Echa, and that is either third-person objective, as we had in the first half of chapter 1, in the first half of chapter 2, and in all of chapter 4, or the first-person singular, which represents the collective eye of the nation, that is Yerushalayim, as we had in the second half of chapter 1, and as we were meant to have certainly, or at least uh, what seems as if we were meant to have in the second half of chapter 2. Um, instead, what we have here is a chapter that is written in first-person plural. Um, it's like a lament or some sort of perhaps even a prayer of the congregation, right? The whole congregation is speaking together. Now, the first-person plural implies coordination between people, right? People are speaking together. It's not one person that is representing the, uh, the, the general community, but it's the entire community speaking together. There's one other factor that I want to note here, then I'm going to try to arrive at some sort of conclusion as to why this chapter is so different than all the other tra- chapters that we had so far, and that is that we open this chapter by addressing God directly. In the very first verse, Zichor Hashem Remember, God, what has been to us, what has been done to us. Look and see our humiliation. Look and see our shame. Right? The, the sense here is that by turning directly to God, what is being suggested is, even though, once again, the request is rather minimal, just look at us and see, as we said, we've seen this in nearly every chapter in the book of Echa. There is a minimal request simply for God to look at us again. This is, of course, the antithesis of the situation of Hester Panim, of God hiding his face, which seems to uh, predominate at the time, or at least this is the perspective people people assume. Uh, certainly the the idea of Megillat uh, Echa in asking God to look at us, the assumption seems to be that they feel that God is no longer looking. Therefore, God has hidden his face from us. Well, here, despite the fact that we do have this minimal request, the very fact that we begin not by describing our own laments, but by turning to God and requesting of God that he remember what it is that we've gone through suggests that the dialogue with with God is back on track, that there's a sense that, in fact, there is once again access to God. Taken together, all of this suggests to me that Parakei, that the fifth chapter in Echa is written or, or said a little bit after some time has elapsed 
if there's a very strong sense that the first four chapters of the book of Echa are written as an eyewitness account of destruction, it's written as the Chorban of Yerushalayim has just taken place or is, is taking place, as the exiles are still on their way to Babel, to Babylon, the sense in chapter 5 is that some time has elapsed. There's a certain amount of perspective. There's a bil- an ability to assess the situation. There's the ability to coordinate between people their response to this terrible destruction. That's the sense in Megillat, in, in uh, chapter 5 of Megillat Echa. Um, and we know that one of the uh, classic ideas in in psychology of loss is that time time is a very important um, is a very important component in healing and there certainly seems to be a sense that Parakei uh, that this fifth chapter is taking us a little bit out of the rut in which we found ourselves in the first four chapters. Certainly there is a very uh, minuscule progression through the chapters. If the first two chapters of Megillat Echa were really stuck in this cyclical, chiastic feeling of, of interminable pain and grief, chapter three has a linear structure. And we noted that that linear structure moves us from point A to point B which is a marked improvement over the first two chapters. The fourth chapter ends with a glimmer of light at the end of the tunnel. We spoke about this in the previous lesson. It begins to pull the morning people out of the terrible rut that they seem to have been in. Well, chapter five seems to be more hopeful than any chapter thus far. It is a vast improvement over previous chapters, and that's really um, uh, an important point to make. It doesn't mean that this is a cheery chapter. It doesn't mean that this is a happy chapter. Certainly, we're still deep in the throes of the aftermath of destruction, but yet, at the same time, there is a sense that, uh, that that of improvement in this chapter, and it's indicated by all of the technical details that I said at the opening of this lesson. Okay, let's look at the catalog of of losses that um, that appears here in this chapter. Nachalatenu nehefcha lizarim. Our inheritance, our land, has been given over to strangers. Batenu linachrim. Our houses have been given over to um, to foreigners. Yitomim hayinu ve'ein av. We were orphans without a father. Imotenu ke'almanot. Our mothers were like widows. Meimenu we could only drink our own water in exchange for money. We had to pay for our own water. Our, our trees, our wood, we also had to pay for it. Um, in Pasukhet, Avadim Mashlu Vanu Porek Ein Miadam, servants ruled over us. There was no one to free us from their hands. We risked our lives to get bread because of the sword that was hanging over us, the sword of the desert. Nashim um, inu. I'm skipping to pasuk Yud Aleph. Women were were raped in Sion bitulot be'arei Yehuda. Young maidens in the cities of Yehuda. Sarim biadam nitlu pnezekenim lo needaru. Bachurim tchon nasau unearim ba'etz kashalu. The officers were hung. The elders were not respected. Were not given uh, their due glory. 
young men were forced to bear a, a, a grindstone and, and uh, young boys stumbled under the weight of the heavy wood that they were forced to carry. There were no longer elders that were sitting in the gates. The young men seized their singing. Shavat Masos Libenu, the joy of our heart, of our hearts seized. Nehepach le'evel mecholenu, our circle dances turned into gyrations of mourning. And this is a catalog of everything that has been taken away from us. All the basic requirements of life, our land, our houses, our father, our waters, our trees. This list continues, it takes us through the chapter. It's told in a simple, direct, almost emotionless manner. When I say emotionless, I mean because of the brevity here. It simply is, this is gone, and this is gone, and this is gone. Women have been raped, and officers have been hung, so we have no longer um, any any respect left. The elders have don't get any glory. No one's taking note of them, and no one is giving them any concessions to their to their uh, old age, the young men are forced into slave labor. There are no longer elders sitting in the gates. There are no longer young men singing. There's no longer any joy. This is a catalog of what we no longer have. Um, and we're going to see shortly that this is very similar to what we said about Chapter Aleph. Chapter Aleph is the description of the city that sits alone. Parak Hay is the description of the city which has been depleted of everything that it once took for granted, everything that it should be able to take for granted, everything that by rights Yerushalayim should have, and yet all of these things are gone. I think that's really the main idea of this chapter. I want to show one more idea in this chapter, and then I want to talk a little bit about the epilogue of Megillat Echa. I would say this chapter pretty much ends with the Pasuk after the one that I last read for you. I, I read for you, Nehepach Evel Mecholenu, our mourning turned into, uh, our circle dances turned into gyrations of mourning. Um, and there's one more verse, and that is verse 16. This, this is the last verse of um, of, I believe, of chapter 5. After this, we have sort of summary verses. We have an epilogue to the book of Echa. Nafla ateret rosheinu, the glory, the crown of our heads has fallen. Oinalanu kichatanu, woe to us for we have sinned. This is a very important ending for chapter 5, for Migilat Echa. Similar to what we said in chapter 1, chapter 5 represents a sort of groping of one's way towards uh, realization of culpability, towards what we call hakarat hachet, recognition of sinfulness. We have two markers along the way. In verse 7, in the middle of cataloging these uh, losses that Yerushalayim has, has suffered, the um, the the community says as follows. They say, "Avotenu chatu ve'enam." Our forefathers sinned, and they are no longer. Va'anachnu avonotehem savalnu, and we we have suffered for their sins. What we have here in verse seven is a shirking of responsibility, a very deliberate shirking of responsibility, without going too deeply into the question, the complex question in Tanakh, as to whether or not there is any possibility 
possibility of suffering for one's father's sins. What I want to say in general about this this uh, um, declaration is that Yerushalayim or the community here is is very consciously not taking responsibility for any aspect of the destruction. It is our forefathers who are sinned. They're no longer here, so we have to suffer for these sins. Now, by the time we get to verse 16, this clearly has changed. There's nothing discernible that causes this change except for perhaps the continuation of the grappling with the situation where it slowly but surely dawns on Yerushalayim, on the community of Am Yisrael, and they're able to say, Oy nalanu ki chatanu, woe to us, for we have sinned. This groping of one's way towards realization of culpability is strongly reminiscent of what we saw in Perak Aleph. In Perak Aleph, certainly in the second half of chapter 1, once Yerushalayim begins to speak, where she says she describes her own pain as something which God has done to her deliberately, asher olali, she says in verse 12, asher hogah Hashem biyom charon apo, which God God made me moan on the day of his great anger. There's no recognition of culpability there until we get to verse 18, where suddenly Yerushalayim begins to recognize, Sadiku Hashem, Kifihu Mariti, God is righteous, for I have rebelled against him against his words. She says again in Pasukaf, in verse 20, My heart turns over inside of me, for I have surely rebelled. And in the last Pasuk, again, of the first chapter, she says, that you have done to me because of my sins. So once again, I think we have uh, a similar idea here in chapter 5, which indicates, of course, both how difficult it is to achieve recognition of sinfulness and also that this is the goal. The theological goal of the chapter is to grope one's way towards the ability to say, in the midst of this um, of the suffering. Um, now, before I get back to that, and I do want to talk a little bit about how chapter 1 in general is parallel to chapter 5, and I want to show a little bit about the structure of Migilat Echa in general, I, I first want to talk about the last five psukim, the last five verses of Migilat Echa, which once again, they're very terse, like the rest of chapter 5. We have five sentences here, basically, and these sentences are meant to be Summary sentences. What do they say? They say, About this thing, our heart was miserable. What is it, finally, in the final analysis, that is really the cause of our misery? It was about these things that our eyes became darkened. This is what has darkened our paths. This is what has thrown us into a state of confusion and despair and terrible suffering. What is it? Because of Hartzion that is desolate, where foxes are able to walk. And here we have, of course, the famous story of Rabbi Akiva walking his, with his friends and seeing the foxes. And this is, again, it throws them, except for Rabbi Akiva, it throws the friends into a state of despair. And they're picking up here, I think, on the importance of this pasuk. This pasuk tells us, in the final analysis, the thing that is most distressing to us, the thing that is really the cause of our sense that our world is a wreck of shattered perspectives, that nothing is what it should be, is seeing hearts 
Tzion, seeing the place where the Beit HaMikdash used to be, and now seeing that it is desolate, and it is a place where foxes, foxes of course are those who like destruction in Tanakh, they particularly are uh, are described certainly in Shira Shirim as those who are the destroyers of relationships. In fact, the Raya in Shira Shirim says to the Dode at the end of chapter two, when she's explaining why, in fact, she cannot answer his call to begin the relationship, she says, "Echazulanu shualim, shualim ktanim, mechablim kramim, uchramenu smadar." Little foxes have grabbed hold of us. Little Foxers, foxes that destroy vineyards. The vineyard in Shira Shirim is the uh, metaphor for the relationship. And so the foxes are there destroying relationships. Why do the foxes frequent Hartzion? Not just because foxes like places which are desolate, but also because they are the symbol of the destruction of the man-god relationship. Uh, similar to what we have in Shira Shirim. The other place where we see foxes in biblical narrative is in the story of Shimshon. When Shimshon ties the fox's tail together with the uh, torches of fire in order to burn down the Philistines' fields. Why does he do this? Because the Philistines have taken away from him his wife. The foxes are the symbol of destroyed relationships, right? So that's what we have here as well. And this is really the the summing up here. But we don't end with that. We end here with a philosophic musing. And the philosophic musing here, which is, again, all of two sentences. So we have, I think, a very uh, a very little, very abbreviated kind of uh, philosophic moment. But yet it's worthy of note, it's very important, that we don't end by describing our misery. We end with a philosophic musing, which is designed to give hope. This, of course, reminds us very strongly of the third chapter of what is it that we say? You, God, will sit forever. Of course, God sitting is the image of God on his throne in judgment over the world, over Am Yisrael. Your throne will exist from generation to generation. And we continue with a rhetorical question. Why would you forget us for eternity? Would you forsake us for the length of days? Again, the sense here is that God exists forever. God is eternal. His judgments are eternal. He will not eternally forget us. And therefore, ultimately, there is a hope for redemption. And this, of course, leads us into the next verse in which Am Yisrael turns to God with a real request not a minimal one, not re'eva habita, not just look at me, but actually a bold request, one that perhaps we've been waiting for throughout Megillat Echa. It has taken us until this moment to get to the point that we can actually ask God for renewal, for the reestablishment of the relationship, for the reestablishment of the formal days of glory. And this, of course, is the famous verse in Echa, of course, being famous because it's the most hopeful one, presumably, and also because it's, it takes us really to the end of Megillat Echa. Hashivenu Hashem Elecha Vinashuva Chadesh Yamenu Kekedem. Right? Return us to, to you, God, and we will 
return, renew our days as days of old. Kedem, of course, has echoes of Gan Eden, Gan Be'eden, Mikedem, when Gan and man were engaged in the most harmonious and intimate relationship, where Kol Hashem Mit Ahalech Bagan, where the voice of God is walking around the garden. Eretz Israel, the land of Israel and Tanakh, is a recreation of Gan Eden, and so we're asking for the restoration of days when we lived a uh, paradise-like existence in the land of Israel in which God was accessible and in which the relationship was harmonious. And yet, this would have been a, a wonderful ending to Megillat Echa, and yet, despite this note of optimism, despite this bold request, which, as I said, we've been waiting for throughout Megillat Echa, it reverses some of the despair found in the Megillah. It ends the Megillah on a positive note with not just a glimmer of light at the end of the tunnel, but a very strong light, a very um, important request What's interesting and what I think is also very powerful is that Echa does not end with that verse. In fact, it seems to me that Echa cannot end on a positive note. It would be too incompatible with the rest of the Megillah. It would be too incongruous. Megillat Echa is a book about suffering. Am Yisrael, in the aftermath of the destruction, is deep in the throes of their grief. It would be incongruous to end with this hope, with with this uh, excitement of renewal when they're still in this, um, in the throes of despair. And so we end with the following words. Ki ma'os me'astanu, for you have surely rejected us. Katsafta Alenu Admeod, you have been very angry with us. The Megillah ends on a sigh of despair. You have surely rejected us. You've been altogether harsh and very angry at us. There is a footnote, however. And the footnote is, is that um, there is a, a minhag, there is a custom, that when we read a book of Tanakh out loud in the congregation, and it ends with negative, a negative message or inauspicious words, the congregation repeats the second to last verse, which is, more positive. And Rashi says this here. Rashi says, because we end with words of tochacha, with words of rebuke, and more, I would say more accurately, with words of rejection, with words of, of suffering, Rashi says, therefore, we know that we have to repeat the second to last verse. And there are three other books that we do this with. When we finish Yeshayahu, we, the, the Tzibor, the congregation, repeats the second to last verse. When we finish Treasar, that is, when we read Malachi, we repeat the second to last verse, and we do the same with Kohelet. And so uh, after the the person reading Echa in Shul says the words, the Tzibor, the congregation in Shul, responds with a resounding note of optimism. We do not accept the possibility that we could end anything on an inauspicious note with a negative message. Instead, the power of the tzibor is the power of optimism, is the power of believing that because as, as a congregation we are defined by our relationship with God, there is no doubt that this relationship is going to come through. We have a covenantal relationship with God. God has promised not to reject us forever. And therefore, this is a particularly appropriate ending for the for Echa. We've already seen 
that if anybody, we saw this in chapter 3, if anybody will be capable of alleviating the harsh punishment which has been meted out by God, it will be the congregation as a congregation. It will be Knesset Israel, the congregation of Israel, whose power lies in the fact that as a community, they are defined by a covenant in which God has promised not to reject them forever. And this is the ending of Megillat Echa. The custom, I think, is an integral part of our understanding of the way in which we experience Megillat Echa as a book of suffering, but a book in which the only hope to this suffering is the power of the covenant that exists between the congregation and God. Now, before we end this shiur, and in the remaining minutes allotted to me in giving the shiur, I'd like to discuss the overall structure of Megillat Echa. Now, the reason that I'm not devoting a whole lesson to this is because I've been carefully de- developing this idea as we progress throughout our learning of Megillat Echa. I'll begin with an idea which I presented in our second class, and that, it, that was in the introductory class to biblical poetry, and that is that structure always reflects meaning, that form it reflects content that there is no structure that is devoid of a deeper theological meaning in the Tanakh. Structures aren't merely there in order to be aesthetically pleasing. Um, and what I'd like to suggest is that Echa as a whole is built in a chiastic structure. And this chiastic structure um, suggests that, that the first chapter is parallel to the fifth chapter, the second chapter is parallel to the fourth chapter, and the third chapter is some sort of central pole which has no parallel chapter. And that certainly um, explains our reading of chapter 3, which we noted is an extraordinary chapter in Megillat Echa. It is very different. It tells the story of one man's experience of suffering within a theological context, and therefore it makes sense that any sort of chiastic structure would highlight the middle. But what of the two other um, uh, concentric circles that we have here in Migilat Echa? Well, we've noted today that Perak Aleph is similar to Perak Hay, that chapter 1 is similar to chapter 5 in several different ways. First of all, the silence of these chapters. They are very quiet chapters. They're not destructive chapters. They're not active chapters. In these chapters, we have almost an eerie silence. And what is described as I noted, is not the destruction in the, the the city, but the loss, what is no longer in the city. Ein la menachem, she has no comforter, is a phrase that we find four times in chapter one, and also in chapter uh, five, we have the word ein, yitomim hayinu ve'ein av, there are no longer Fathers. It's what's no longer in these chapters. And perhaps the um, common word to both of these chapters that sums up the connection between these chapters is the word almana. Not just almana, but ke-almana, like a widow. Yerushalayim is like a widow. And the widow symbolizes what is missing, right? The widow symbolizes vulnerability. The widow symbolizes someone who has no economic means. But the widow also symbolizes loss. She has lost her husband. There's one other thing that I want to point out. The word almana is related, according to Chazal, to the word ilaim, right? Someone who is mute. The, the silence in these chapters, the inability to speak, it comes from that deep, penetrating sense of loss. Now, um, 
Anyone who wants to uh, chart the linguistic similarities between chapters 1 and 5, I think that that's a very interesting exercise. I think you'll see that it bears uh, a lot of fruit. There, there are certain phrases and words that appear only in these two chapters. I don't have time to enumerate them all, and I'm afraid that it would be lost without the, uh, without the text in front of you and without a chart in front of you. I will mention one interesting parallel in chapter 1 in verse 16, where when Yerushalayim describes her crying, she says, Al ani About these things I am crying. And at the end of chapter 5, in verse 17, she says, Al about these things, my eyes were darkened. Why are her eyes darkened? Presumably because she's crying. There's a similar description of the cries. This, once again, pulls these two chapters linguistically. There are many different thematic similarities as well. Once again, I'm not going to go into it right now, but I do want to note the most important similarity between these two chapters, and that is the theological similarity. In these two chapters... All the nation suffers together, and that's because all of the nation is uh, is is culpable in these chapters. And these chapters are about an attempt to grapple with the theological situation of national suffering, and this grappling comes to some sort of sweeping conclusion in which the nation assumes responsibility for their own sinfulness. This is really, I think, the periphery of Megillat Echa. The periphery of Megillat Echa is the ability to arrive at the resounding conclusion, Oy nalanu ki chatanu, woe to us, for we have sinned. Once again, as I said in chapter 3, uh, uh, instead of looking at this as some sort of simplistic attempt to assign blame for a very complex situation of national suffering, I would approach this the way that the Rambam approaches um, Avelu to the ra- way the Rambam approaches man's uh, response to death in the 13th chapter of Hilchot Avelut, and that is that after man uh, is experiencing Avelut, is experiencing mourning, the correct response, the appropriate response, is to examine his ways and do tshuva. Not necessarily because this is why that happened, not necessarily because one can correlate the suffering exactly with the sins, but because this is the appropriate theological response. And that's what we find in chapters 1 and 5. Now, as opposed to chapters 1 and 5, chapters 2 and 4 are very different. They're very different in terms of the tone. They're very different in terms of the subject matter. They're very different in terms of who suffers, and they're very different in terms of how they assign blame. And finally, I would say these are different chapters from a theological perspective. These are ideas that we developed when we learned chapter two was chapters two and four. And um, perhaps I'll just offer a summary perspective here, and that is that both chapters two and four are loud chapters. They are chapters that describe destruction. They are chapters that describe the terrible famine in the city as a result of the destruction. And the famine in the city leads to several terrible images, both of, both of which I think relate to one common problem, which is that those who are most vulnerable to the vicissitudes, to the, um, the, the suffering of the famine are the children. The children are vulnerable because they are small, because they are not powerful, they are weak, and because 
what we have here is the uh, slow starvation of the mothers, which doesn't just affect them physically, but it also pulls apart the moral fabric of their their makeup as mothers. And so what we have here is not just the women who are withholding food from the children. That's only suggested here. But more importantly, in both of these chapters, we have the women eating their own children. And so the image of the famine is an image which leads us to uh, to to zero in on, to focus on the death of the children, the children languishing in the streets, the children dying in their mother's arms as the mothers refuse to give them food. This is an image which appears both in chapter 2 and in chapter 4. So the ones who are mainly suffering are the children. Children are not just vulnerable, but they're also innocent. One cannot assign any sort of theological culpability to children. Children are, by definition, innocent. And they're the image that are, is seared into our minds in the aftermath of reading chapters 2 and 4. The other thing that is important to infer is that we focus on the blame of the leaders, not the blame of the whole of the whole nation, not um, uh, not that Yerushalayim has sinned, not not that we have all sinned, but as we have, for example, in chapter 4, it was because of the sins of her prophets and the sins of her priests. And we have that as well in uh, chapter 2, verse 14, it was your prophets that prophesied for you, um, uh, meaninglessness uh, and, and falsehood. Uh, the focus on the leaders also, I think, involves a shirking of responsibility. And so what we have here, and we have many linguistic similarities between these two psukim. So, for example, the words olel vionek, the young children and the sucklings, the um, the the rechovot kirya, the streets of the city, the rosh kolchutzot, every street corner, and, of course, the children who are spilling out their lives. The word shafach, lishpoch, uh, to spill out their lives appears in both of these uh, chapters. Again, if you would if you would try to chart the linguistic similarities between these two chapters, I think you would see how similar these two chapters are, not just in tone, not just in subject matter, but also linguistically. And this all leads us to the theological conclusion. If it is the leaders who are mainly to blame, and if it is the children who are the main recipients of the um, of the, the suffering that is going on as a result of the famine, and as a result of the terrible destruction, then these chapters have only one theological conclusion, and that is Tzadik Viralo, that a righteous person is experiencing terrible suffering. And that is the next circle of theological conclusion in the chiastic structure of Megillat Echa. So at the periphery, in chapters 1 and 5, we have the sense of grappling with... Um, the theological approach to suffering with a conclusion that, in fact, our, our sins are, uh, lie at the heart of the suffering that we have no choice but to examine our sins. But in the more inner circle we have in chapters 2 and 4, we have this sense of Sadiq Viralo. To me, this very complex weaving of Migilat Echa creates, I think, some sort of uh, picture, some sort of composite picture of how religious man contends with 
terrible suffering, especially in a national context. I think that there is this uh, sense that is created by the composite picture of Megillat Echa, the chiastic structure of Megillat Echa that suggests that man is constantly bouncing between these two poles. On the one hand, religious man believes yesh din v'yesh dayan, there is a judge, there is order in this world, there is justice, even if we don't understand it, we accept it because we believe that this world is not a place which God has created in order to imprison us and torture us at whim, at will. This is what we saw in chapter 3. On the other hand, we live with the absurdity of a world in which things happen which we can't explain theologically, where children die, where things happen that simply uh, we, we, we grapple with the absurdity of it and we live with the uncertainty of a world which we simply can't understand. And so the bouncing back and forth between these two poles is what lies at the very heart of um, of man, of, of homo religiosis, of, of a man who is contending with a world which he doesn't understand, but he desperately wants to understand, he desperately wants to believe in. And it's this complex weaving together of the composite picture of Megillat Echa which I think is the very heart of the theology of Megillat Echa, one which you can't really discern until you examine the structure. And so we end once again with this sense that structure reveals meaning. Of course, we didn't discuss, uh, at least uh, particularly in this lesson, the importance of Parag Gimel. But of course, Parag Gimel is the very central pole. It's the pole in which individual man grapples with his own experience of suffering within the context of his relationship with God. And that we discussed in two shirim, in two lessons as part of this series. And so we end our study of Migilat Echa with an overview of the structure of the book, which in my mind uh, contains the, the, the very heart of the theological approach of Migilat Echa to suffering. In our next class, we'll be discussing Echa Rabah and offering an, a little bit of a sense of how Chazal used and read Migilat Echa. I wish everyone a meaningful fast, and I wish for us as Am Yisrael a situation in which we can emerge from the fast with hit orri, hit orri, kumi Yerushalayim, with a reawakening of Yerushalayim, a situation in which instead of uh, of despair and lack of comfort, we have a Kadosh Baruch Hu saying, as he said in Yeshayahu chapter 51, Anochi, Anochi, Hu Menachem Chem, I, God, am your comforter.